0: And I'd invite you to turn in God's Word to Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2. Actually, we're going to begin in chapter 1 when I read here in just a few moments, but if you don't have a Bible, there are lots of them uh, in the seats in front of you there, and it's going to be page either 924, or I'm sorry, 925 or page 984, uh, Colossians is where we are at. And you see the title of the sermon this morning, Be a Captive to Christ Alone. Be a Captive to Christ Alone. And we're going to be zeroing in on chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 is going to be the focus of things this morning. Um, Originally, I was going to go through verse 15, but because verses 11 to 15 are so rich and so dense regarding the person and the work of Jesus Christ and what those who are in him have in Christ, because those are so rich, we're going to save them, excuse me, for next week. And as I read today, what I want to do is actually go back to chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read all through chapter 1 and chapter 2. And I want to do that just because it helps set in context, once again, uh, the fullness of what we're going to be looking at in verses 8 through 10. I think A couple of months ago, when we began to go through the book of Colossians, the very first sermon that I did, I read through the entire book. I'm not going to do that this morning. We're just going to do chapters one and two, Uh, but I think it's helpful for us to hear this all again. So let me lead us in prayer, and uh, then we'll read, and then we'll move into the fullness of what the Lord has for us. Let's pray together. Father, even as we have just sung, we pray that you would help us and that you would reign in our hearts and in our minds even now. We pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. And Father, please help me to clearly proclaim your word through the power of your Holy Spirit. And even for those who are perhaps yet dead in their sins, may you draw them to you in saving faith. And for those of us whom you have brought to saving faith, may you help us to grow and to become more and more like Jesus. And we pray all of this for your glory in him. Amen and amen. So we'll start in chapter one, verse one. I'm going to read through the end of chapter two. I would encourage you, as you hear this, just to note the emphasis from God through Paul on the supremacy and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's hear God's eternal and life-giving words, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Verse 24. his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And this is the word of God. Well, the heart of God's call through Paul in this letter is right there in chapter 2 verses 6 and 7. God wants his people to always walk in Christ Jesus the Lord. And we looked at those verses in some detail last week. But that's the focal point of God's heart. That's the focal point of this letter through Paul that God wants his people to always walk in Christ Jesus the Lord. And that means that for those who have received Christ Jesus by faith, to keep walking by faith in him, to keep trusting and submitting to who he is and to what he's done and to what he's given and to what he commands. And this is really the heart of the Christian life, to keep walking by faith in Jesus as he's revealed in God's word. And this call, as it is expressed there in verses six and seven, is very clear. It's very direct. It's very straightforward. But here's the challenge in all of it, and here's why Paul, through the inspiration of God, is so burdened about this, because he knows that there are spiritual dangers and threats that Christians face in this world. In fact, he knows that there are dangers that could actually enslave Christians that could take them captive. And that's what he's burdened by because he knows those dangers exist and he doesn't want God's people to be taken captive, to be enslaved. And so this is what he is speaking about in verses 8 through 10 in chapter 2. And as you carried on with the thought there, even as I read, you see this is what he's speaking about throughout this whole chapter. And again, it really informs the entire letter, his burden about these dangers. So in other words, to be a Christian, to be one who has been delivered by God from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, the one in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins, as Paul says there in chapter 1, verse 14, to become a Christian is to become an enemy of the dark domain from which we have been saved. It's to become an enemy. And it's to become an enemy of the demonic spiritual forces of that dark domain that relentlessly work to take us captive. And this is a real and an ongoing danger and threat to God's people. It wasn't just a danger and threat to God's people in the city of Colossae that Paul is writing to. It's a danger and a threat to all of us this side of heaven. And it's a danger and threat that we need to be sober about. And so this is what this passage is about in verses 8 through 10 that's woven into this entire section. It's the burden of God through Paul that we not be taken captive by false teaching. And so God's burden through Paul here is is what we find in verses 8 through 10. And, And the point of it all is really the title of the sermon, Be a Captive to Christ Alone. And be captive, be taken captive, if we want to say it that way, to Christ alone. That's the thrust. That's the big idea, the main point of what Paul is, is laying out here and what God is laying out, that we would be captive to Christ alone. Now, you might have noticed that back in verse 4 of chapter 2, Paul alludes to this briefly. And again, we looked at this last week. When he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you, no one may deceive you with plausible arguments. Or as another translation says, with fine-sounding arguments. There he's speaking of this danger in a very general, broad way. And then in verses 8 through 10, he gets a little bit more specific. But then from verse 16 to the end of the chapter, he's going to get really, really specific about the nature of this false teaching and of these dangers, and even just in hearing it, as I read it a few moments ago, you see there were multiple uh, aspects of this false teaching. It was very pluralistic, pluralistic and syncretistic in terms of what was infiltrating and pressing upon these believers in the city of Colossae. And again, similar to how it is in our day as well. There's just a smorgasbord of, of error. So Paul speaks of it very generally in verse 4. He gets a little bit more specific in verses 8 through 10, and then he gets really, really specific in verses 16 to 23 that, of course, we'll be looking at another time. But within all of this, and particularly with what he says in verses 8 to 10, he highlights three priorities that he emphasizes in his call to be captive to Christ alone. There are three priorities that are components of how we remain a captive to Christ alone. And so that's what I want to highlight as we zero in on verses 8 through 10 again. And let me just read that passage again, verses 8 to 10. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elementary, or I'm sorry, the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And so three priorities I want us to see here in what Paul speaks of in how we can be captive to Christ alone. Here's the first priority, and it's this. Take full responsibility of your walk in Christ. Take full responsibility of your walk in Christ in Christ. Hear the beginning of verse 8, and note what Paul says there. He says, see to it. This is a strong, forceful, direct command. It's an imperative. And what Paul is saying when he says, see to it, is just that. Take full responsibility to be alert, to be on guard, to watch out for this danger that I'm telling you about. It's an alarm bell. It's a a loud ringing alarm bell that's saying, wake up and be alert to the danger that is imminent and take full responsibility for your walk in Christ. And now remember, we've just highlighted in verses 6 and 7, he's spoken about this command in a very positive way of as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And that's an imperative, that's a command as well. And now he's alerting to this danger and and wanting us to see and to understand that we need to be alert. We need to take responsibility for our own walk with Christ. And what this means by way of implication is that we need to be proactive and not passive in walking in Christ. We need to be intentional. We need to be deliberate. We need to be diligent in walking with him. And of course, it means then being alert to and guarding against everything that would threaten us and everything that would threaten our hold and and faith in Christ and compromising that. And so we're talking here, and when Paul says this, he's talking about a mindset. He's talking about a disposition that embraces all of God's provision and resources and commands in Christ and takes full responsibility for walking in him. We all who belong to Christ need to own this and need to embrace this mindset and this disposition. And at this point, we just need to be honest with ourselves, as I need to be honest with myself. And namely, to acknowledge that because of indwelling sin, for any of us who are believers... Even though we're in Christ, we still have indwelling sin that we battle. And as a result of that, we all have a tendency to be lazy and passive when it comes to our walk with Christ. We all have a tendency to, rather than taking full responsibility within all that God has given us in Jesus to walk with him, it's easier for us to be passive. And some of the symptoms of that passivity can be that we can complain Or that we can put the blame on other people or circumstances for why we're not walking with Jesus more diligently. Or in other ways, we might try to justify our negligence and our disobedience. And and, and there's just a, a mess of problems that we can easily fall into. Because we're not taking seriously the command in Christ and through all the resources God's given us in Christ to take responsibility. For our own walk with him within the circumstances that he's ordained for us. Now Paul, of course, in this context is specifically warning believers to watch out for the enslaving danger of false teaching. And we'll see this more fully in the second priority that I'm going to come to in a moment. But I want to just emphasize the force of Paul's command that we take responsibility for our walk with Christ. Because again, I think it's easy for us to often want or expect that somebody else somehow is going to really do the hard work of walking with Jesus for us. You know, it's other people in the church who are supposed to be helping us with this. Or it's the leadership of the church that's supposed to be helping us with this. Or maybe it's a family member or whatever it may be. And we may not come out and just say it that way because that wouldn't be respectable after all, right? But subtly in our souls, we're not taking the full responsibility that we need to take in our own walk with Jesus we get kind of the Adam syndrome, if you will. Remember back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam had relinquished his need to be protecting Eve, and she ends up being deceived by the serpent and rebelling, and as a result, they sin and they they rebel, and all of God's curse and devastation and death comes, and they're hiding from God. Adam doesn't want to fess up to what he's done. God hunts him out, God finds him, God exposes him, asks him him what went on, and what's Adam's first response? The woman that you gave me made me do this. He's blame-shifting. He's not taking responsibility, and we're all prone to that as well. You remember what happened at the end of John chapter 21 in that gospel? After Jesus has risen from the dead, he's appeared to his disciples. And and the closing scene that we find there in John chapter 21 is Jesus meeting up with Peter. Again, remember Peter who had denied Jesus. And Jesus has, has firm but loving words with him. And he restores Peter in that moment. But he also calls Peter to follow him. But then there's a very interesting little dynamic to that that we find that after Jesus has done this with Peter in verse 20 of John chapter 21, we read that Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at the table close to him. And he said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw this man, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Now, Jesus had just told Peter to follow him, and he had just told Peter something about the way Peter was actually going to ultimately suffer and die because of his union with Christ and following him. And so Peter is looking at the other guy and saying, Well, what's going to happen with this guy? What are you going to do with this guy? And Jesus says to him, verse 22 If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. In so many words, Jesus is saying, Peter, you take responsibility to walk with me. You follow me. Don't compare yourself to to what I'm doing with another person. You follow me and keep your eyes fixed on me. And so, again, that's an illustration of what he's doing in, in calling him to take responsibility for walking with Jesus. And that's the first point that Paul makes in this first priority is see to it. Each of us individually need to see to it. We need to be on guard. We need to be alert. We need to take responsibility. And beloved, this is a major point of growth in the Christian life when you and I begin to take full responsibility for our walk with Christ. We take responsibility to plan, to work, to be deliberate in seeking Jesus and fighting sin, to intentionally be spending time in God's Word, praying, serving, following Jesus within the circumstances and the opportunities that he ordains for our lives. Now, praise God in his design. He gives great help, and he gives great encouragement from one another. And that's what the life of a local church is all about in God's design. We do pray for one another, support one another, encourage one another. When necessary, we confront one another. We're in this together But we all together have to take that individual sense of responsibility in our walk with God. Because at the end of the day, nobody else can believe for us, and nobody else can follow Jesus for us. We have to do that. So I would just ask you, how about you this morning? Is that your mindset? Is that your disposition, taking full responsibility in your walk with Jesus? Are you proactive or are you more passive in your walk with Christ? Are you deliberate and intentional in seeking to know and trust and obey and follow Jesus or is it easier to to just kind of drift along hoping somebody else will do the hard work for you? Are you embracing your full responsibility in walking with Jesus or Or is it easier to subtly or maybe not so subtly complain, grumble, blame other people and circumstances, or compare yourselves to others, or in some way justify your negligence? Perhaps God is saying to you there's a a wake-up call. There's a need to take responsibility, take full responsibility for your walk with Christ. Well, this is the first priority that we need to see with what Paul says. And the second, then, is directly tied to it. The second priority is this escape the captivity of false teaching. Escape the captivity of false teaching. And this is what Paul then, of course, goes on to say in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And he's ultimately talking about the danger of false teaching. And this is what we must take responsibility to guard against, to be alert to, and to escape. The danger of being taken captive by that which is false. It's a real, present, constant danger for believers in this fallen world. Now when he uses that little phrase, see to it that no one takes you captive, it's pretty self-explanatory, but it has the idea of being captured and controlled as in spoils uh, in a war. And again, I've already made reference to what Paul says back in chapter 1, verse 14, about for, if we've been saved, then God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. But the enemies that reign in that darkness yet try to capture us out of the kingdom to which we now belong. They cannot ultimately sever us from Christ. We are secure in Christ But we can be taken captive in the sense of being drawn away from our dependency upon Christ and from walking faithfully in him. And so that's what the sense of being taken captive means, to be drawn away from our devotion and confidence and security in Christ. And it's interesting to me, if you think about it, all of us, probably with not even really consciously thinking about it often... We're very, very, very alert to and cautious uh, things that could take us, take us captive. Think about disease and illnesses. Obviously, we just had this massive experience with COVID and everything. And to varying degrees, we had regard for We don't want to get that thing. Whatever else it was, we, we, we didn't want to get that. And so we would take necessary precautions, again, to varying degrees. But because we see that as bad, we see that as something that's not good. We also take precautions because there's bad people in the world. There's criminals and there's murderers and there's all kinds of bad people. And so we take reasonable precautions because we don't want to be impacted. We don't want to be captured. And yet, as true as that is for us in our physical lives, so often spiritually, we're just careless. We don't see to it. We don't have a regard for what is true and what is false and the dangers of that which could take us captive spiritually. So this is the second priority to realize we need to be alert and be aware to escape the captivity of false teaching. Now Paul describes this false teaching there in verse 8 as philosophy and empty deceit. And he's referring to worldly wisdom that is deceitful in the sense that is contrary to the truth. And he modifies that sense of deceitfulness with that little word empty, which means that it's empty, it means it's void, it means that it's useless, that it completely lacks any helpful insight and understanding. And in saying that, it doesn't mean it's just neutral. But because it's drawing us away from Christ, the true source of nourishment, the true source of wisdom and understanding, to embrace anything that is empty, that's the nature of the deceit because it keeps us away from Christ. So it's deadly. It's, it's, ca- it, 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 it's controlling. It wants to take us prisoner. Now it's interesting, notice that Paul characterizes this philosophy and empty deceit in three different ways. He uses three different or three similar uh, prepositional phrases, according to. You notice there in verse 8, that's mentioned three times, according to, according to, and then not according to. And he's characterizing the nature of this philosophy and empty deceit. And this is what makes the false teaching so false because of what it is according to. He says, first of all, it's according to human tradition. And and that sense of according, that little preposition could also just have the sense of it depends upon human tradition. And this has to do with human tradition, with that which is man-made, that which is man-centered, and that which ultimately leads to false worship, It's based on, it's according to, it's dependent on human tradition. Maybe you remember what Jesus uh, said about this and about the traditions of men back in Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. And here he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. And he says, as he's rebuking the religious leaders and those who are self-righteous, He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as the doctrines of men, teaching as doctrines of men uh, that which should belong to God. they, They twist and they take the doctrines of men, the commandments of men, that which is being put forth as being from God. And he's speaking there of the traditions of men, human tradition. And this is what Paul is dealing with. And he goes on to specify these things again later on in verse 16 and following. And in whatever form it comes, it's ultimately something that is based on being centered on man. Man-centered thinking, man-centered ideas, man-centered traditions that ultimately lead to idolatry, that ultimately lead to idolatry. He goes on to say then, the second way he characterizes this is according to the elemental spirits of the world, the elemental spirits of the world. Now, there's a lot of debate about the exact meaning of, of what it is that Paul is getting at there. But it seems to be referring, he seems to be referring to the false teaching that comes from evil spirits that appeal to man-centered, idolatrous instincts. False teaching that ultimately comes from evil spirits that appeals to man-centered idolatry, to self-righteousness, to the sense that, that we can make ourselves well. And again, with what Paul says later in verse 16 and following, he he gets very specific about these things. In fact, if you look down at verse 20, he makes reference to these elemental spirits again. He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you still live in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And he goes on to describe the the emptiness of those kinds of regulation because they don't change anybody on the inside. They don't deal with the heart Now, Paul uses this phrase again in in the book of Galatians, his letter to the Galatians, in chapter 4, verses 3 and 9. And there, when he uses that phrase, he's referring to external self-righteousness, legalism, trying to be justified before God, made right with God on the basis of our own self-righteous efforts. And so again, there is debate about exactly what this phrase means and the reference point of it in Paul's day, but it seems to be speaking of false teaching, which is ultimately coming from evil spirits and the nature of it that appeals to the elemental spirits of the world that center around man. It's kind of the man-centered rebellion and the man-centered arrogance that, that began to take place from the fall on, from Genesis 3 on. It's that attitude that says, hey, we've got problems." But we can fix it. We can figure it out. If we just get enough education, if we just get in the right environment, we can work our way out of these problems. That's really what was going on in Genesis chapter 11 in this tower that was being built as a, as a stairway to heaven. People thinking that they can come together and be unified enough to, to work their way to heaven. And that's the impulse of fallen humanity, the elementi, elemental spirits of the world. But then the key characteristic in all that Paul uses to describe this false teaching is the the last way he describes it, it's not according to Christ. That's the point. Whatever else may be part of all of these other things that Paul is talking about, the ultimate reason this is empty and deceitful and false is because it's not according to Christ. It's not according to Christ. And remember, part of the reason I wanted to go ahead and read all of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 is because everything that Paul is revealing and speaking of there is regarding the supremacy, the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you take time, some of the very things that he says in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 2, he's echoing some of the language he's already used in speaking of Christ and his supremacy and his fullness and his sufficiency. So the reason false teaching in all of its myriads of forms is so false is because it's not according to Christ. And that helps us understand, I spoke a little bit about this last week, how it is we can discern false teaching. The question becomes, is what I'm hearing helping me to know and to trust and to worship and to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ as he is revealed in Scripture? Is it pointing me to Jesus as revealed in scripture with a right understanding of scripture? Is it helping me to do that or is it pulling me away from that? Even if you don't know very much about all the intricate systems of all of the different religions in the world and all of the different cults in the world and all of the different forms of false teaching that there are, however big or however small they may be, that's the way to begin to discern. Is this pointing me to scripture? Is it pointing me to the Jesus that scripture reveals? And is it pointing me to know him and to trust him and to worship him and to obey him? And to understand the hope of the gospel, to understand what he did in dying for sins as the only remedy for sin by where we can be reconciled to God and forgiven and know the blessings of union with him. And so all of this, and the way that Paul is characterizing this false teaching, what he's doing is he's underscoring how severe and sobering his warning is. Because if it's not according to Christ, then you could be giving way to that which is pulling you away from him. And false teaching is ultimately about false worship. That's why it is so dangerous. Because rather than worshiping Christ... And living in the fullness of Christ, it's pulling you away to worship something or someone else. False teaching is ultimately about false worship. And that's why that passage in Deuteronomy that was read a little bit earlier in our service is is so important and so significant. We live in the new covenant in Christ. We are not the old covenant Israel. And so some of the commands and directions there in terms of how they're to respond to those who are guilty of false teaching, uh, that was in a unique time for, for that people at that time. But the principle is still the same with regard to God's regard for the purity of worship of him. And part of the reason, even as he says there in Deuteronomy 13, that in his wisdom and sovereignty, he allows there to be false teaching is to test his people, to see if our hearts are devoted to him and loyal to him. And he's the one with whom we all have to do. And so this is why reading and studying and meditating on God's word and memorizing God's word and and being in a local church where we're hearing God's word preached and taught and interacting with one another around God's word is so absolutely central in the life and the worship of the church. Because we need to be grounded in the truth, lest we be taken captive by false teaching. And so to be captive to Christ alone, first means to take full responsibility for our walk in Christ. Second, it means to escape the captivity of false teaching. And this brings us to the third priority, which we see expressed in verses 9 and 10. And I'll just say it this way, to walk fully in the fullness of Christ alone to walk fully in the fullness of Christ alone. Now this overlaps with and intersects the whole with the whole thrust of everything that we're seeing, but I just want to see the emphasis that Paul gives to this. So he says in verses 9 and 10, with regard to Christ, and again in many ways he's echoing things he's already said. He says for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily And you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, when Paul uses that little conjunction there at the beginning of verse 9, the for, it's introducing the reasons for his exhortation, the basis, the reason for why he's calling for this. It's because of who Christ is and it's because of who we are in him if we are in him through faith. And so all of that sort of translates into this priority that I just describe as walking fully in the fullness of Christ alone. And what's interesting with what he says in verses 9 and 10 is notice in verse 9, the beginning of verse 9, well, all of verse 9, um, he's talking about who Jesus is. And then at the end of verse 10, he talks again about who Jesus is. But then in the middle of that, at the beginning of verse 10, sandwiched in the middle is who we are in him. What we have in him if we are in him. So there's kind of these bookends on either ends of what he says in verses 9 and 10. And in the middle is who we are in him. Well, look at what he says about who Jesus is. Verse nine: For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells in, bo- or dwells bodily. And then again at the end of verse ten, He who is the head of all rule and authority. When he makes that statement about the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Jesus, he's echoing what he said earlier up in verse 19 of chapter 1, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And he's drawing on language there. This language of dwelling is drawing upon God's dwelling among his people in the old covenant. When he dwelt in his presence, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And what Paul is saying, what God is saying through Paul is that the fullness of God, his presence now dwells bodily in Jesus. He's referring to the reality and the mystery of the incarnation, That the fullness of God, the fullness of his essence, the fullness of his nature dwells in Jesus. And when he speaks at the end of verse 10 of the fact that he is the one who is the head of all rule and authority. Again, he's already spoken to this in verses 16 to 18 of chapter 1. That he rules over all authority and over all power and that he is the head of the church. He's the one who is in life-giving authority and supremacy. And so he's just emphasizing that reality of his unconquerable supremacy in all things. That's who Jesus is. And then who believers are in Christ, he says at the beginning of verse 10, you have been filled in him. And do you see even how he's, he's making a play with these words of fullness and filling? As the fullness of God dwells in Jesus bodily, so believers have been filled in him. And it has the sense of completeness. It has the sense of sufficiency, the sense of adequacy. Meaning that believers have everything we need in him who is himself the embodiment of God himself in the mystery of the trinity and the mystery of the incarnation. He's always all that we need and we are filled with him. You know, Think about if you were to go to the ocean and stand on the on the shore and look out at the vast expanse of the ocean and you have a little jar with you and you go to fill that jar up. Is the ocean going to be sufficient to fill that jar up? You say, well, of course, that's ridiculous. I mean, that's nothing. That takes nothing out of the ocean. That is a small, very imperfect comparison of what it means to be filled with the fullness of God. We can't even comprehend the vastness of who he is. There's a limit to the ocean. There's a limit to all creation. There's a limit to all the universes, all the expanse of everything that God's created, but there's no limit to God. And he's the one who fills us in Christ and through Christ. Now that statement there that we have been filled in him is what sort of segues to what Paul's going to go on to elaborate on in verses 11 through 16, which again, Lord willing, we're going to look at that in more detail next week. But he's speaking to the absolute supremacy, the absolute sufficiency of Jesus. And this is why he's just reinforcing the call with this priority to not only take responsibility for our walk with Christ, to not only uh, not be taken captive by false teaching, but to also continue to walk fully in the fullness of Christ alone. He's just banging the drum on the sufficiency, the glory, the supremacy of Christ and the fact that he is all that we need all the time so that we wouldn't be taken captive by what is false. And so, beloved, this is the heart of what God desires for us. And in our day, as it was for the Colossian believers in their day, we need to take these matters seriously and be captive to Christ alone. God wants us to be consumed with him, to be confident in him and in all of his fullness, in all of his glory, and all of his life, and all of his love, and all of his riches, and all of his righteousness and power and hope. It's the hope in him for the salvation and redemption that we have in him. That God is jealous that we not be shifting away from, that we not be pulled away from. He wants us to be consumed with, confident in, captivated by and captive to all of God's splendor, majesty, power, supremacy and sufficiency in Christ. Christ as he is revealed in scripture. You know, at the physical level for you and I, when we get hungry, what do we begin to do? We begin to think about, well, how am I going to fill this hunger? And the hungrier we get, the more we think about that. And I'm sure for you, it's like me at times, there's different specific foods that I think, man, I just can't wait to have such and such. And if it's a longer time that, 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 that my hunger goes on, the longer, the more preoccupied I become with what it is I want to eat. Yes, I can be doing other things and involved in other things, but I'm preoccupied with when I'm going to get home and get to eat one of Lori's incredible meals, like I did last night. It was wonderful. And we're that way with physical food, aren't we? That's a picture of, of how we're to be so preoccupied with Christ. Convinced of God's mercy in him and his grace in him and his greatness in him and his goodness in him, convinced and confident and thus consumed with and captivated by Christ so that we wouldn't be taken captive by that which is false. No matter how alluring and how seductive and how plausible it can all seem, if it pulls us away from Christ, it's empty and it's destructive. And so, beloved, that's the call of this passage. Be a captive to Christ alone. And as we would do so, to strive after that together, and to love one another and pray for one another and help one another to those ends. So let's pray to that end as we close our time. Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we hear this so clearly and we see it on the pages of what you've revealed here through Paul and Colossians, Father, may we own it for the specific ways you would seek us to continue to walk closely with Christ and to take our walk with him seriously and to continue to take our responsibility and take full responsibility, lest we be taken captive by anything That is false and contrary to Christ. Father, help us to live and walk in that way. And again, for anyone who may be present, who has never come to faith in Christ, who is yet alienated from you and dead in their sins and under your wrath, oh God, how we pray you would open their eyes and bring them to repentance and faith uh, that they could know the forgiveness of their sins and life with you in Christ. We pray in his name, amen and amen.